is Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Welcome to uh, the second episode of the new season of Existential, and uh, today we have another guest with us. I'm really excited to talk uh, to our guest that I've, I've reached out to some time ago, and I, I like, you know, I just, I dropped the ball. <laughs> and, and didn't We didn't get him on, but he's on now, and I'm, I'm really happy to have him here. But before we get into that, um, again, I want to remind you guys that if you are um, interested in uh, going deeper into whether it's deconstruction or, you know, just some spiritual coaching or uh, anti-racism coaching, you can go to my website, CoreyEvanLeak.com, and find out more about how you can get connected to that. Also, if you are not a part of the Patreon community, uh, you can become a part of that by also going to CoreyEvanLeak.com. So I just want to make sure that you are all aware of uh, of those options for those of you that are listening to the podcast. And also, if you've not subscribed to this podcast, please do so after listening to this episode or before. Doesn't matter when, just subscribe to it. All right, today, uh, Blake Chastain is with me, and I'm really, really excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Blake is, Blake is actually responsible for the hashtag and the, the movement, uh, Exvangelical. And so I, once I saw the work you were doing on Twitter and, and what, you, um, what you've been up to, I'm like, man, I really want to talk about that, especially like starting that Exvangelical movement and conversation, like, what went into you? Well, if I actually first just introduce yourself, I know you're from Chicago. Um, we'd all love to hear about the White Sox and <laughs> Chicago style hot dogs, Portillos, anything, anything Chicago you want to talk about. Yeah, thanks for having me, Corey. Um, thank you for that. Those those kind words of introduction too. Um, yeah, just to uh, let's let's talk about Chicago first. So I I grew up before um, moving to I moved to the suburbs of Chicago and during high school before that I was in Indiana. I grew up in Indiana okay. uh, in small town Indiana, um, about an hour outside of Indianapolis. Um, and then after college, ended up moving into the city. Uh, I was, you know. Sort of typical Christian college story of getting married within a couple of years after college, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then my my wife's grad school uh, brought us into the city. So, and then we were there up until last year, okay. uh, and now now we are um, in back in the suburbs. Pandemic sort of shook things up, and we moved a little closer to family. Wow. Um, so yeah, I actually grew up. Oddly enough, um, I grew up a, a Cubs fan. Uh, Indianapolis, okay. Indiana is sort of a weird spot geographically because the a lot of the southern state goes cheers for either St. Louis or the Reds. Um, mm. Then there's some people that are on the north northern side that might cheer for the Sox or the Cubs. But my dad grew up um, a Cubs fan because of WGN. Uh, WGN was one of the first national TV stations broadcasting out of um, out of Chicago throughout the rest of the Midwest. So I grew up a Cubs fan, uh, and I grew up on the far. I, I when I lived in the city, I lived on the far north side. So okay, <laughs> I'm uh, happy for I'm happy for the Sox to be in uh, in the ALDS though. <laughs> I, thought, well, I thought as a Cubs fan, you're supposed to hate the White Sox though. That, you know, like, yeah. You know. I mean, some of that animosity. Uh, I'm not, I, I'm not, uh, 
that um, you know gung ho and really into any sports right now. Gotcha. I mean, okay. it was really fun to be on the north side when when Chicago broke the curse. That was for sure. Awesome. But how, <laughs> how many times a week? Just because you know, I'm not sure if people know I was born in Chicago. I think I mentioned it before. I think when we had. Um, I forget who we had on that was from Chicago. I think it may have been Kathy Kong, where we talked about Chicago and Chicago style hot dogs, which is, mm-hmm. to me, it's the first thought that comes to mind. It's not the Cubs, the White Sox, the Bulls. <laughs> it's not the wind. It's not the snow. It's Chicago style hot dogs. That's How right. often do you eat a hot dog, being that you live in Chicago? Um, not as much as I'd like. <laughs> <It's a> travesty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, anytime you, you know, you, you order it, like you order it through the garden, drag through the garden, you know, um, is how, uh, that's just with everything on it. Um, but so good with some sweet relish and a pickle and, and all the other and stuff that goes on. To a... You can't get it anywhere else. Like they're like, I went to the store here in the Bay area and I bought the buns with the poppy seeds. Mm-hmm. I tried to buy all the other ingredients. I, I literally went online and I looked and I came home. And it was not the same at all. Not yeah. even close. Do you do they have jardinera there? Do you did you like the spicy the spicy peppers? Do you I, do the jardinera? I, well, so here's the deal. I would order the hot dog. Would you say you said through the garden? That's what that's what yeah. I born in Chicago. Didn't even know that. Did you learn well, I mean, I, that was one of the things I've heard. But you can just you know Chicago dog with everything too. <laughs> so I, I always get it with everything, but. Yeah. I would always take the peppers off. I take I take the peppers off. Sometimes I leave it on, but most of the time I take it off, and I'd also take the pickle off. Also, it's just like, but I just you have you to know, order it with all that stuff on it because it's yeah. just it's just a part of the thing, right? I mean, it it can be hard. Like it's a logistical challenge when you've got this the pickle spear on there. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, it's because you gotta you gotta bite through all of it. Exactly. But... <laughs> no, so maybe I guess the best way to eat is your first bite. You bite through everything, and then you decide. Okay, now I I. I have honored the ritual, and now I can eat it the way I want to. That's, that's yeah. right. You know, let's yeah. just talk about regional foods. <laughs> there is no other regional food to talk about besides Chicago. Well, maybe pizza in New York, but I, I you know, whatever. We, we, you know, we, we don't have time on this particular podcast. But we got to talk about the stuff that, like, I, I want to talk about the, this evangelical stuff, dude. Like, yeah. what, what's your background? What's your story? How did that come about? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up, um, as I mentioned in small town, Indiana, I ended up, uh, I grew up in actually the United Methodist church, which a lot of people, uh, sort of, um, sort of have in mind that that is one of the more mainline, uh, denominations. But I think in what has been more, uh, visible in the last couple of years is just how, uh, that's not like uniformly the case. Like, yeah. and now we're seeing the United Methodist Church literally about to become ununited over uh, LGBTQ affirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I like to describe sort of the UM experience um, is it sort of takes on whatever local flavor. So, you know, being in a small, like small middle-class town that's mostly white and in Indiana, um, it's going to have more conservative leanings than if you went to a UM church in downtown Chicago, mm-hmm. um, where that will definitely be more uh, politically and progressively or politically and theologically liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I grew up 
and sort of had positive um, had positive experiences uh, in in church settings. And when when I moved in high school, um, moved out of state to to the Chicago area to the suburbs. Um, that was when I really got into like the late '90s youth group culture, um, and it was just it was like you know, it was really powerful at the time as far as uh, having like a built-in sort of friend friend group. And, um, you know, you've got all those teen hormones and then you like throw religion into the mix and it gets real interesting real fast. Um, you know, and at like the ripe old age of 17, I felt the call of ministry, chose um, Indiana Wesleyan as my college as a result. And, um, uh, that was where it was at Indiana Wesleyan that I had my first sort of crisis of faith. Uh, it was through, through that experience through those few years where I was, um, uh, I was a double major that my main department was really big on double majors. So I went into school with uh, history and uh, biblical literature majors. Um, and my first full week of college was when nine 11 happened. And, um, it sort of changed the entire tenor of my experience because um, my history professors, I could now sort of say, I don't, I didn't have the vocabulary at the time, um, but they're Christian reconstructionists. Mm. Uh, so they were, you know, pushing the biblical Christian worldview and all of this stuff, very de facto Republican mm. types of, uh, you know, political beliefs and theological beliefs. And, um, then I was contrasting that with what I was learning about how the Bible was constructed and mm-hmm. sort of exploring the character of Jesus in a different way. And that just led to a lot of cognitive dissonance. Mm. And uh, that was sort of where I decided I wasn't going to pursue ministry just because I felt like I had too much doubt um, to be like a well-equipped leader. Um when I, when I wasn't certain about things myself and then that sort of kicked off the next, you know, few years of just, just working after college. Um, I went to grad school part-time, um, and while, while working and discovered, um, a movement called creation care theology, um, which is, you know, about, uh, sort of unearthing, uh, narratives of, that promote ecological stewardship and mm-hmm. and the biblical narrative um and that sort of revitalized things but uh by 2014 uh i couldn't really um keep find like find a place within our church uh which was a you know pretty fundamentalist church um to sort of continue to stay in evangelicalism um and there's there's whole elements to that too um but then that's when i started exploring this idea of trying to um just really trying to have conversations about why so many people that i grew up with or grew up with or went to college with that i was still connected to online even loosely through facebook seeing us all sort of become liberal um or move more towards that sort of uh, a different understanding of christianity or choosing not to 
participate in those communities anymore and just trying to understand and explore that um, in a particular in a particular way and it, that's the sort of sort of open-ended questions that still drive the podcast like that was i started thinking about that question after we left our church in 2014 mm. um and then you know it wasn't until two years later that i started actually <laughs> publishing um episodes and stuff um and then the hashtag itself i i thank you for for your kind words, but it's actually taken on, you know, a life of its own. And there are people who, uh, there are so many different people talking about these sorts of things from lots of different angles. And I think that is a feature and, uh, a really, uh, really powerful thing that so many people, um, are just speaking their own stories. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people have, uh, similar stories to yours. Of- mm-hmm feeling dissatisfied with um well just kind of the the way that that faith is practiced and the way that god is talked about in some really um i don't know kind of really plain and basic ways elementary mm-hmm. ways that don't mm-hmm. like that don't stretch our imagination yeah that don't really lead us to meaningful work in the world you know and so mm-hmm. when you I'm curious about um, the idea of stewardship of of basically of the world of like a an ethic a, a spiritual um, practice as a way of being religious that is also connected to the planet we live on. Like, yeah. How yeah. how how have you found that life giving? Um, I mean, that's that in a lot of ways has has stayed with me even when even as my own sort of beliefs change. And I I think one of the things, if you grow up in some sort of evangelical, um, some sort of evangelical context, whether it's primarily white evangelicalism or another form, um, because it is a global movement, there is an entire history that's distinct for uh, black evangelicalism and other mm-hmm. types. But I, one one thing that is present in white evangelicalism is this sort of, assumption that your beliefs really won't change you might become more certain in them over time mm. but you you know there's not this like sense of change but i think um one of the things that a lot of us are learning and continuing to explore even publicly um is being uh you know much looser with our understanding of of what a whatever particular belief might be day to day um, but also, you know, maybe orienting more t- towards ethic, an ethic or a value mm. rather than, you know, w- how you feel about the Nicene Creed <laughs> on Tuesday versus Wednesday, <laughs> you know, yeah. because, because I think that that is an animating thing. Um, even, you know, Corey, we, we've learned uh, of each other through things like Twitter and we're mm-hmm. connected, you know, to mm-hmm. people all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, and I think that can make you, you know, suspend your own sort of beliefs or, or not be so dogmatic about them, but still continue to try to value creating a world that is more just for more people instead of, yeah, you know, white evangelicalism is structured in a way 
that benefits people that look like me and pretty much nobody else. And yeah, dude. Yeah, dude, for sure. Like, how how would you describe then the like the essence of um, exvangelicalism? You know, like if if that's a thing, like what what is the what's the power behind it? What what do you think it is that has been so compelling for so many people to latch on to that idea and kind of feel um, empowered by it? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a few things that that are valuable. Uh, I think one is that just um, it's really, it can be pretty immediately understandable. You know, it's sort of punny. It's, uh, mm. it definitely, de- it defines your past relationship to something. Um, mm. so it's, so just in, in the way you might refer to an ex-partner, you know, as ex-girlfriend, mm. ex-husband, ex-husband, whatever, you know, that still signifies that you spent a um, legitimate amount of time with someone and were committed to them. Mm. So there's that. Um, it also, um, what I also think is valuable is that it does help because of the way it's used in things like social media, uh, it helps to let people know they're not alone. Um, because I think prior to, there've been people that have left evangelicalism for decades. Um, but a lot of times you just don't know, you didn't know about it because the only people that were able to share those stories were the people who got book deals, you know, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, through the whisper network of meeting up at a bar because you didn't, <laughs> because you weren't, because you, you, you know, did the fadeaway and, and weren't at the men's Bible study at Dunkin' Donuts at 530 on Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> Another gym I miss, by the way, Dunkin' Donuts. We don't have, well, we do have Dunkin' Donuts. Some go to it often. Dunkin's better out east than it is out here, but keep going. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, anyways, like that, I, that that's another benefit of of the sort of term. But I, I what I, how I view it, um, is that it's a, is that it doesn't do, it is both a clear sort of repudiation of white evangelicalism of saying, I don't agree with the the way this movement is uh, white evangelicalism expresses itself politically or theologically, how it treats women, how it, you know, tries to combat forces for good in society, like critical race theory that they say is demonic. Like, you know, amazing, amazing. Um, things like things like that. It helps repudiate that clearly. Um, but it also doesn't make any sort of presumptions uh, or requirements theologically. So you could be someone who finds value in the term exvangelical, but is atheist or is Episcopalian or mm. nothing or whatever. Um, and that sort of openness, I think, creates a type of almost like uh, ecumenism that yeah. uh, evangelicalism does, itself doesn't allow. Um, yeah. And whether, you know, whether someone uses it for a period and it's like really valuable to them and then they sort of outgrow it. I, I also think that's totally legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, you said a couple of things in there that I wanted to like uh, harken back to. One of them was I'm really fascinated by um, is when you talk about X and what that means in terms of a relationship, like an ex-husband, an ex-wife, an ex-girlfriend, ex-employer, that mm-hmm. 
these, whenever I hear someone describe my ex, there is always a feeling that I have hearing that, that is, there's a story there. Mm. There's, there is, even if, even if you're on good terms with your ex, there's always a story. Yeah. And there's something that happened. There's something that you carry with you. There's something that is between you and this other person or this, this other employer that um, the two of you know and the two of you experienced mm-hmm. that's always with you. Yep. And, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm interested to know, like, to talk through kind of what that means in terms of all of us who would consider ourselves evangelicals, like, what are we carrying with us? What 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 is you know what what is it that we because now we're we're forever connected to evangelicalism. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, that's such a good question. I mean, and I think that is part of part of that. Like the work is exploring that, and I I think that um, even if you even if you don't use the sort of um, terminology of deconstruction or um, any of the other related related online movements and and critical movements like decolonizing like i don't i think that sort of work is really important i don't i don't know my role in using a word like decolonize like as a as a white guy i just don't know mm-hmm. whether that's appropriate um and i'm but like a, a lot of these things like white evangelicalism has been a significant political social religious presence in our society for 200 years, like in its current manifestation. And especially like the last 50 years, um, politically, they've just um, really made so many uh, significant strides in, in putting their stamp on the world. And as far as what we carry with us, like, I I think that that part of it is, oh man, it's so much interesting work happens around people that are talking about how trauma is carried or processed in the body. And mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of that resonates and rightfully so with people who are processing these experiences. Um, and like, I'm, I'm sort of stretching for, uh, and a better response. So I'd love to hear what you think. Like, what? Wh- how do you think we, we well, yeah, carry this? Well, it's interesting because, like, I think about, um, like, there are exes that, um, you know, there are relationships that 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 break because of some form of abuse, mm-hmm. whether that's mm-hmm. like physical or, or emotional abuse. And so you leave this particular relationship because you. F- found the courage to stand up for yourself and set boundaries. And so you said, I am, I'm out of here. I'm no longer mm-hmm. dealing with this. Then there are those that where you, you know, you, you hear of, of relationships that end because they, they're just irreconcilable, irreconcilable differences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just grew apart. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, any number of reasons why you wind up no longer in the relationship you were in, um, you know, you like I said, you're carrying these stories, and I think there's a lot of people who had an abusive relationship with the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. I would say most of us had 
somewhat of an abusive relationship with the evangelical church. We just didn't realize how much so. Some people have had very blatant things said to them. I, I would say that especially with white evangelicalism, if you're a person of color, especially black mm-hmm. or a woman, and certainly LBGTQ plus folks, you've been mm-hmm. abused by that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of, you know, and I'm speaking uh, sort of um, from my purview, because I'm not a white male, but I think a lot of white men who walked away from it was probably more irreconcilable differences theologically, or like some sense of some sense of justice that like I don't like the way you're treating people who I care about, or I see some dissonance in what you're saying God is about and the way you're treating these people or the way you are leaning politically or as you said earlier so brilliantly how you are actually opposing good in the world like yeah. something something comes up it's good whether that be uh preservation of the planet whether that be a preservation of um uh, people's human dignity whether that be revisiting um the 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 critical <laughs> nature of how we deal with race in this country, mm-hmm. you start to notice that the evangelical church is consistently on the opposing side of these things that seem to be consistent with the virtue and ethic of Jesus. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and I and I I think that is that is one thing that. Uh, a lot of people that have stayed in white evangelicalism, you know, that are apparently ride or die because they went, they, they stuck around through the Trump era yeah. and they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're sticking around now. Yeah. Um, is that, is that the fact that people have been trying to push for reform in white evangelical circles through their own self-approved means uh, of reform for a long time. And then, a lot of people do have to recognize when they're not, as you said, like if they've been abused, like mm. LGBTQ people, people of color who have tried to say, I'm in this space, you need to recognize it, you need to adapt, you need to ask for forgiveness and do these things. And they just, nah. I'll pass. But I mean, that's the, that's the thing um, is that is that people have been doing that for decades. Uh, like um, Bill Pinnell at, at Fuller um, surfaced or wrote the book, My Friend, the Enemy in like in the 1960s. Mm. Um, and he was, he was present uh, and is a, still an emeritus professor at Fuller. Um, but I, th- these are some of the facts. And the thing is, is that a lot of, a lot of, white evangelicals or people that grew up in white evangelicalism have a lot of catching up to do (laughs) Mm. like because they they didn't learn this stuff and i didn't you know learn this stuff until later and that's one of the things that makes you um even if you're even if you do have an immense amount of privilege um as a as a white white man like you'll still get upset that this stuff was hidden from you (laughs) yeah dude um So, and how do you find it? How do you, how do you find this stuff? I mean, like, so I don't know how much I've talked about um, my journey here on the podcast, but, you know, just for anybody wondering, I I didn't start, I think a lot of people assume I started off talking about race because I'm black and this was naturally or duh, but I actually wound up talking more about race and anti-racism and anti-blackness through a theological journey mm. that started with 
first going to Israel and secondly reading Rabel's book, What is the Bible? And then I read pretty much every book at the end of it where he he sort of lists all these other books to read. And I started reading. It's almost like when you um, when I was younger and I would like listen to these, to, well, even now, you you might listen to your favorite artist and then they have like a, a, a they feature an artist on their on one of their songs and then like you're like oh, i like that artist so you start listening to that artist and they feature yeah. someone i kind of got that from reading you know scholars i was like oh i like this scholar and he talked about this scholar and i want to you know and she talked about this scholar and they talked about this scholar so i want to read all of that um and like i just i wonder for you what was the journey to find what seemed hidden from you uh i think it was things it was for me it was things like college like so say in high school i worked at a christian bookstore um you know i one of the early sort of gateway authors was somebody like philip yancey who um you know he's really popular amongst evangelicals or at least he was 20 years ago um and he was one of those authors that points you to other authors which i think is one of the best best gifts an author can give you is to say, you know, I, I don't, this wasn't original or this isn't wholly original. Like this, this is who helped me. Um, the greatest gift a book can give you is <laughs> point you to other books. For sure. Um, totally agree. And, um, and so that was something like, that was like the first little crack, uh, cause he would talk about, you know, uh, authors like Dostoevsky or all these, some of these other people that, uh, within a couple of years, I was starting to read in college um, and then, you know, starting to learn about I took biblical Greek um, in college and hmm. um, learning about how the Bible was constructed. Um, and that's crazy. Yeah. So that stuff was <laughs> that stuff. That stuff was, you know, that rattled my cage. And yeah. then, yeah, then um, it was through things like uh, the reading lists of um, um the reading list of some of my, my grad school professors, like I took a class called moral reform in America mm. and we read a book called hellfire nation. And it was about the politics of sin and morality in American history. And it was fascinating to see like, Oh, all this, like, uh, like satanic panic and, and all this stuff from the eighties and nineties. Oh, that's, that's a cycle. <laughs> like I've never heard satanic panic before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's this, it's a, it's like a, it was a phenomenon in the eighties um, where people, yeah. Just... Well, I, I remember it. I, 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 did, I, rem I remember like that's when Carmen was big and he was doing the same yeah. like the dust stuff and the, the witch's invitation. I remember being super freaked out by all of that stuff. I remember like the after school specials about like how wicked Halloween was that I would see in the 700 club and that freaked me out. So yeah, I do, I do remember like all of that <laughs> yeah. stuff. I just didn't know it was satanic panic. I remember hearing about how the Smurfs were, the Smurfs were demonic. He-Man was demonic, all of these things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would say the other thing to the other part of your question, one of the things that, that sort of um, has been very instructive in the last few years has actually just been things like Twitter. Like if, if you just mm. follow good accounts on a place like Twitter, like you, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, talk, you know, interact. You don't have to talk with them necessarily, but it's just an education. Like, mm. um, I, I think I was able to, uh, learn to be more specific with my own language as I was starting the podcast about, dialing in and describing white evangelicalism because I was 
following black women on Twitter and other people mm-hmm. that and other people who had experiences in white evangelicalism and experienced more of that abuse or marginalization. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of those sorts of tools are, you know, Twitter is, you know, it's a hell site too. So it's not, it's not always the healthiest place to be, but it well, can sometimes also, it is. yeah. And sometimes yeah. it can really expand your view of the world. Yeah, for um, sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times we kind of demonize things, you know, for their worst aspects without recognizing there's a lot of good that comes mm-hmm. out of them also. Yeah. Um, you know, and social media, I think, is one of those things where, like, you know, speaking of satanic panic, I think there's kind of this this new era of panic that people have about social media and how awful it is. It's, you know, it's, you know, but it's I've made so many great connections like like you and I that are talking right now because yeah. of yeah. social media. And you can see that there is a whole group of people, a whole community of people um, that are saying yes to your story. I validate what happened to you because it happened to me. Mm-hmm. What you experienced, I also experienced. What you're right. saying, what you're feeling, what you heard at that church, I also heard um, at my church, and we are we don't even know each other. So it does right. build like this community of people that can be there for one another and validate the experience, which I think is a powerful thing. But mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to take for granted that everybody listening knows what I think you and I both these have some knowledge of is how the Bible is constructed. And you mentioned it twice. And I'll, if you could just kind of briefly for folks listening, um, because it, it, this is a fascinating thing to like to hear. So just mm-hmm. without, you know, necessarily being super expansive, but like just kind of a cliff notes version of when you say how the Bible was constructed, could you kind of walk through that? Yeah. I mean, so as far as the, the Christian Bible is concerned, there's the, the Jewish, um, the Jewish Bible, which we call the Old Testament, um, and then uh, the New Testament, which is all the writings of the the Gospels and and um, the Acts, the historical books, the Acts of the Apostles, and then all the Pauline epistles and all the other epistles. And um, what how the Bible is really presented in a lot of um, a lot of contexts and churches is that. It was, it is the inerrant word of God, um, and meaning that it has no, uh, no textual errors, no error in, in its message. Um, no spelling errors, no punctuation <laughs> errors, nothing. It's just, like, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, uh, like there's lots of books that, um, that address this, like you mentioned, what is the Bible by Rod Bell? There's the Bible tells me so by Pete Enns. Mm-hmm. Lots of really accessible books. Um, another one that sort of bridges the gap between like uh, academic work and how the Bible is used by people in the world is How to Read the Bible by James Kugel, which is focused on the Old Testament. But bear in mind, just the just the Jewish Bible is. Uh, a collection of books that was written over a 1500 year period. Um, yes, it was by, uh, by the same society. Uh, but imagine, just imagine our society and how much it's going to change within 1500 years. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and that fact alone 
you know, really starts to mess with things that like you, you're, you're told, you know, it's a plain reading, a plain reading of the Bible. Well, <laughs> what about when, <laughs> what about when you learn about German higher criticism and the JEDP, like, uh, you know, all these different sources that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Jewish Bible, um, how they were constructed. Like there's, whenever you learn about that academic work and those historical, that the history that's involved there, um, it muddies things up. And then as far as when it comes to the new Testament studies, uh, it's also fascinating to understand that even the, the, uh, oldest gospel, the gospel of Mark was still written 30 years after, um, the death of Jesus at, at its earliest, more than likely. Um, and then the process of selection uh, over the following 300 years by, by the early church to decide which books were uh, approved to be part of the biblical canon and which books weren't. Yeah. Um, those sorts of things don't, you know, that's not what your, what your pastor's going to focus on on Sunday. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. Well, and not to mention, so, I mean, dude, you talk about 1,500 years that it takes to write the first testament, or at least for it to be, you know, th- those writings kind of spanning that time. And imagine, so, yes, imagine that the United States, uh, over a span of 1,500 years, how much will change should we even exist that long. Mm-hmm. Right. Because there's this right. idea, you know, white supremacy does kind of make us believe that will uh, certainly white evangelicalism will will be here forever until Jesus comes back to get us. That's right. Like, like yeah. civil, all these other civilizations have come and gone. All these other world powers <laughs> have come and gone, but we're going to be around. For, <laughs> right. But like imagine. So we, say we're here for 1500 years. Imagine the difference in how people will process things. Mm-hmm. even. It just even look at our history now over 250 years of being a country and how different we are. Not to mention that if some other culture were to get our writings and go through our artifacts and, and the ruins of our society and construct ideas about mm-hmm. God based on our culture and customs, and they have completely different cultures and customs and languages. So you mentioned mm-hmm. Greek earlier, Greek, you have Greek, you have Hebrew, and all of this over thousands of years. And we're supposed to believe <laughs> yeah. that it's inerrant, it's without error, it's without flaw, that like all of that happened and we have this perfectly bound book yeah. that is the manual that yeah. everyone should live by for all of eternity. Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, even if you want to look at more recent things, like the the work of translation is, it's it's not value valueless it's not objective Mm -hmm. um and you'll have a you'll have one one translation like the esv which is really popular with conservative churches work in things like complementarian theology into significant biblical texts and that shit's not there and like (laughs) like I'm sorry, I didn't ask if I could swear. Oh, dude, yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a part of your existential. So somebody says shit, you know. So we're, now, now we're now we're in it. But but I mean, that's the uh, that is the sort of thing that happens um, during the work of translation, and it was not without without intent 
Um, mm. Like when I, I believe it was um, the, yeah, a, a recent revision to the ESV within the last 10 or 15 years, they made a, a change to, uh, you know, Genesis three and saying that, that Eve would be essentially subservient to Adam. Uh, that really just dr- drives home this complementarian belief that that women should submit to men, and they this is what they and then they tried to say like this is the final <laughs> this is the final edit we're good we're it's good a, from here <laughs> it is ama- it is amazing to me yeah like, and uh, it's yeah. amazing to me like you have this 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 sort of idea that permeates. Um, being evangelical, being a Christian in the United States, that like, as you mentioned earlier, the Bible is clear. Um, And then, or, you know, the Bible is the word of God. And you go, okay, well, which version are you talking about? You know, like what, what because if you stack them up side by side, if you, you could take one verse and go through you versions, 800,000, you know, different translations, and you're going to have a different statement made. Mm-hmm. Like that, and we. So there's some other influence that I think is fascinating. Think of, there's some other influence outside of the text that yeah. is affecting how we approach it, what we believe to be true about it, and therefore uh, what we think of ourselves as good or bad Christians. Right. Yep. And 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 what we see present in in conservative white evangelicalism for a long time is this very, um, very conservative reading that favors the powerful Mm. um, and favors, um, yeah, like as far as like presuppositions and Calvinism and all that other stuff, like like you're going to have a different reading of, of a text when you have those assumptions about both the text as well as the God that it represents. Yeah, it's dude. not going to be, um, it's not going to be the same sort of uh, God that um, like a liberation theologian is going to have. <laughs> or, yeah, for, completely different. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, I want to ask you one last thing. I want to just get your thoughts on it because I've been thinking about it today is just um, the idea of Christian apologetics. Um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it. You know, I mean, I just uh, I think that's probably pretty obvious to anybody. But the (laughs) the difference between that and deconstruction, because I think what I'm starting to notice happening right now is that um, a lot of, you know, uh, Western Christian leaders are recognizing and seeing these terms, evangelical decolonization, deconstruction, and they're going, okay, what do we do about it? How do we address it? These things are coming up you know, and their answer is apologetics, which is the defense of the things we're talking about, the defense of the infallibility of scripture, the defense of complementarianism, the defense of all these, uh, of, you know, of, 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 of uh, a sort of anti-universalist view of faith. How, what are your thoughts on like this, the, the response being, let's jump into answers to the questions that people have? Yeah, um, I mean, I think I apologetics is such a such an interesting uh, you know field because they are trying to to utilize historical facts to to you know 
demonstrate the veracity of their particular claims about Christianity over against, um, over against everyone else's. Uh, and like part of me thinks that they're still not necessarily understanding why people are questioning Mm. those movements. And uh, like, I'm, I'm not sure what they're clinging in, in that respect. I'm not sure what they're clinging onto. Like, is it because they want to preserve the church as it is uh, and just have it be frozen in time? Because like you, like you said, Corey, like there's a belief that white evangelical style Christianity is, is eternal and it, and it's going to be around forever. And it has always been around and it reads itself back into history. Mm. Um, And yeah, it's part of me thinks that that they're not necessarily they're not necessarily still listening without an agenda, or be, because mm-hmm. they because they want to convert you back so bad <laughs> to that old way of thinking. Um, and it's not as if it's also not as if these types of discussions haven't happened within Christianity itself. Like John Wesley. Um, who's the founder of Methodism and, and a lot of the other holiness movements trace themselves back to them, like the Wesleyan church, the Nazarenes, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. across the board, deeply influenced by John Wesley uh, in, in a conversation that he had with um, like a Calvinist, because he was Arminian. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he said, your God is my devil. <laughs> wow. And um and like part of like I've sometimes I use that quote because that is often how it feels. Like if you're mm-hmm. if you're defend if you're trying to defend a God that wants to deprive people of their own liberties or flourishing, then why is that a God worth serving? Like put aside all this other historical junk. Like like why why is that an institution worth preserving? Why is that a God worth serving? Um, yeah, dude. And, these are the questions. The reason why people are asking these questions on the outside is because they're not um, asking them within their own churches. Yeah, and they're not, it's... they're not, they're not stewarding or pastoring uh, or shepherding their groups in the way that leads them to anything besides lining their own pockets or making themselves feel better. <laughs> Dude, it's almost like a, uh, uh, um, you know, the abusive spouse who is trying to bait the partner back home, mm-hmm. you know, back into the relationship. I think that's kind of uh, a way of viewing apologetics is that you're not actually listening to the reasons I left. You don't know why I left. You, you, mm-hmm. you're not interested in, you're not, you weren't interested in counseling. You weren't interested in, in reconciling until I was gone. Right. Yeah. And now you're yeah. desperate to get me back. But I love the way you know, you said this was it still reeks of agenda. It's like, mm-hmm. It's it's not it it doesn't show care for me as an individual as a uh, intellectual as somebody who has the freedom to uh, uh, to believe and think for myself. It's that like once you start thinking outside of the parameters of what we what we believe, um, we've got to try to wrangle you back in. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's it. Well, dude, <laughs> I, I so love and appreciate uh, the time we've, we've had, man. Thanks for taking the time to, to talk to us. Well, why don't you let folks know um, anything you got going on they can, they can take part in or, or you know, 
even if that's just following you on Twitter, but you know, I'd love yeah. to hear you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Corey. I've really enjoyed this yeah, conversation. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. That's the main place I sort of, you know, um, am online. And so I'm at BR Chastain on Twitter. Uh, my podcast is called Exvangelical. I have an, uh, another season-based show called Powers and Principalities. Um, the first season was all about uh, Christian nationalism. Mm. Um, mm. So you can check that out. Uh, lots of really interesting authors on on that feed. Um, and then I also have a newsletter called The Post-Evangelical Post um, because all my ideas start as puns. So um, you can Very find cool. that. Uh, postevangelicalpost.substack.com totally well dude i'll make sure that that stuff's in the show notes guys check the show notes for uh all of that information as well you can uh stay connected with um blake there blake thanks for coming on the podcast thank you so much for having me well folks thanks for listening to this episode and every episode that you've listened to thank you to all of you who have subscribed to shared talked about bragged about um told your mom and them about this podcast Thank you so much for all of you who are part of the Patreon community. I love you guys. Appreciate you so much. And thank you to all of you for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time. 